0: We are on lesson 112, part B, of Such is the Kingdom of God. You can look that up in your books, and then if you would open up your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 9 to 17 this morning, and um, finishing up that lesson we began last week. One man who wrote a book which is called The Culture of Narcissism. You all know what narcissism is? It's self-love. A narcissist is someone who is in love with himself. And his name was Christopher Latch. In his book he said, self-absorption is the climate of contemporary society. And I thought that is so true. Our contemporary society is absorbed with self. And as our culture has increasingly moved away from a biblical foundation, which all you have to do is look around and you'll see that that is true, Many forces have competed to fill in the place that once was reserved for God. And the primary force that wins in that competition happens to be self. Today's secular society, secular system is intent on trying to persuade all of us that loving ourselves is the greatest love of all. And the most important thing in life is to what? Feel good about who? feel good about yourself. Such self-love, we are told, is the greatest value to have, for the answer to life is found in self-esteem and having a positive self-image and an unconditional self-regard. Humanists tell us that there is nothing higher and nothing more dignified than human existence, and the human self is the ultimate source of true value. Yet, if you think about it, in teaching us this, man is paradoxically stripped of of his truest and highest dignity, which is that he is made in the image of who? Made in the image of God. Instead, we are taught to believe, or they would like us to believe, that um, our very existence is nothing but an accident. Now, don't you think that there's a world of difference in, in knowing I hope you know, as a Christian, that you were foreordained, predestined to, have, to be who you are. You know, before the foundation of the earth was laid, God knew that you would exist. And not only were you foreordained, but that you were created in his image. Now, that image has been marred because of sin, but isn't there a world of difference in be- believing that you were foreordained to exist and that you were created in the image of God? as opposed to, on the other hand, believing that your value is in that you came to into existence just by chance over billions of years of time and that we are just the evolved apex of a chain of ancestors that began with amoebas and apes. Now, now which gives the human pers- being more dignity? Being created in God's image or coming from an ape? an amoeba by far being created in you know what is the ultimate purpose of man to glorify god how do we find life in losing life to glorify him to live for him you know if if you believe that you came into existence by an accident and over billions of years you know we have just evolved from the apes then you're going to act like an animal if you think you came from an animal you're going to act like an animal and that's what we see. But. And then, of course, that, that's what the secular humanists would teach us. And then there's this whole realm of this cosmic New Age movement, which is not gone out. It was popular, but it's, it's still in existence. And it comes at the whole issue of self-esteem from a different perspective because they say that man is even more than the most dignified of living creatures because man actually has God within him. Man just needs to find the God that is within him. There is no one God, you know, one personal God. Rather, we all have inner divinity within the tremendous power of self. And then there are, very tragically, even a number of very popular preachers today who have jumped on this selfism bandwagon, and they will tell their listeners... That man's problem is not sin, and it is not rebellion against a holy God. You'll hear these preachers, and they sound great, but you never hear them talk about sin and disobedience and rebellion and dying to self. Rather, they will tell tell man that our problem is just our low self-esteem. In other words, the biggest problem that we have is that we don't feel worthy of God's love. And so what we need is to, to believe how great we are. You know, we're just all so wonderful that we deserve being his children. The happiness of self is the goal of all these varied versions of the same old song, where self-esteem becomes an end in itself. They don't talk about holiness. The whole goal is happiness, happiness of self forget about holiness the chief end of man is to glorify God and to be holy as he is holy but you won't hear them talk about all of that while it is true that we believe what we believe about ourselves is indeed important the fact is that God's way of giving significance to our lives is very very different from what these others I have told you about um, would tell us And it is only when God is truly seen for who he is that it then becomes possible for us to see ourselves as we truly are. The meaning of our existence and the meaning of our lives is only found when life is theocentric. What does the word theo mean? God-centric. When it's, you know, the whole meaning of our life is... Is aimed at God and, and like I said before, glorifying Him and living for Him. The meaning of our existence does not come about when we are egocentric, when self is on the throne instead of God of our hearts. And this is a truth that the Lord Jesus Christ taught in one of His most well known parables. And it is a parable that once again is only found in the Gospel of Luke. Did I tell you to open up to Luke 18? I did tell you that, right? And it is the second parable in Luke chapter 18 that tells us of the type of people who will make up the kingdom of God. That's the whole subject for this study on Luke 18. We looked at one type of person last week uh, who will make up the kingdom of God, and that one is one who is persistent in prayer, just as the persistent widow. And today we're going to learn about another type of person who will make up the kingdom of God, and that is given to us in the parable of the penitent publican. Or, as some call it, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Now, while the parable involves prayer, both men, the Pharisee and the publican, will pray in this parable. You already know about it. I haven't read it yet, but you know about the parable, I'm sure. But even though prayer is involved, it really is not a parable so much as um, on how to pray as it is on how to be justified. In other words, how to be saved before God. It really warns us against the dangerous attitude that is so prevalent today in the inflated selfism of today's philosophies. And the key phrase for this parable, if you want to look ahead at verse 14, the key phrase of the parable is this, for everyone that exalteth himself shall be what? Abased. And he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. That's the key phrase for this parable. Those who have the humble heart of the publican, not the self-righteous, egocentric Pharisee. The ones who have the humble heart of the publican are those who will inherit the kingdom of God. Of such is the kingdom of God. So let's look at the parable of the penitent publican. I'm just calling it that for purposes of our outline so um if you will look at with me starting at verse 9 in luke 18 parable of the penitent publican it says and he jesus spake this parable unto certain unto certain men is implied there which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and what else did they do they despised others and here is the parable two men went up into the temple to pray The one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes into heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the end of the the, uh, parable. And then the Lord goes on to say, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Which man? Which man? The publican went down to his house justified. Rather than the other for everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted well it's interesting that just as the Holy Spirit had inspired Luke to give us the primary reason for the parable of the uh, persistent widow in verse 1 of this chapter remember he gave us the reason he said the reason for the parable was that men ought always to pray and not to faint So, um, here again, he gives us, Luke gives us, the reason for this second parable. And I read in one commentary that these are the only two parables where we are given the reasons for the parables. And they're both right in a row. What is the reason for this second parable? Look at verse um, 9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Both of these parables in luke chapter eighteen have what we could call twofold purposes the persistent widow parable had number one a purpose that we are to pray always and purpose number number two not to do what not to faint not to quit we're always to pray and we're not to quit twofold purpose for the parable and now again in this second parable of the penitent publican, we again have a twofold purpose number one not to rebuke, I mean, to rebuke, he gave the parable in order to rebuke self-righteous security. In other words, trusting in ourselves and our own righteousness. And second reason for the parable is against, it was to rebuke self-righteous scorning or the despising of others. So he's he's giving the parable to rebuke self-righteous security and also self-righteous scorning of others. Now, because self-righteousness and the scorning of others was epitomized by the Pharisees, they were known above all other men for being self-righteous and looking down their long, pious noses as other people. Therefore, Jesus used a Pharisee as his first of two main characters in this parable. Actually, they're the only two characters in the parable. And that's interesting because the other parable only had two characters, too, didn't it? The persistent widow and the unjust judge. So we are told that a Pharisee and a publican went up into the temple to pray. And then we learn, first of all, of the Pharisee's prayer, if you could call it a prayer. It really isn't a prayer at all. It's a big bragamony session. All right. Now, you all know, I guess by now, that the Pharisees were a sect of the uh, Jews a religious sect that arose during the time of the Maccabees which was the intertestamental period of, um, of the history of Israel between the book of, of Malachi and Matthew remember when we studied how Hanukkah came about <coughs> the uh, Feast of Lights and the Feast of Dedication we did a whole lesson on that, and uh, the Pharisees began during the time of the Maccabees, and they actually started out as a very good, with very good purpose, and and they were very good. They were right on the mark because they stood firm against the efforts to Hellenize Israel, which meant what? To Greek ties <laughs> to make every everything the whole culture like the Greek culture they stood against that because to bring in the Greek culture was also to bring in the Greek gods so they stood against uh, you know it, having Israel paganized. And, um, and that was particularly true under the time of uh, the Syrian general named Antiochus Epiphanes. Remember him? He was such a wicked guy, and he came in, and he slaughtered a pig and put, it, put in Zeus uh, in the holy of holies of the temple. And, you know, that was an abomination of desolation. Well, they stood firm against that guy. So they they were, the Pharisees were good. They were the exponents and the guardians of both the written and the oral law. They believed in the divine inspiration of the scripture. They kept alive the belief in the uh, coming Messiah. If it wasn't for the Pharisees, the people would have lost all hope in the coming Messiah. But they kept that hope alive, even though they believed that he would be a political Messiah as opposed to a spiritual Messiah. But they... um, they believed in strict obedience to the law as opposed to the Sadducees. They believed in the resurrection. Remember, the Sadducees didn't even believe in resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. But I <coughs> can't believe some of you still haven't heard that. <laughs> uh, but so the Pharisees were good guys. But what happened um, over the course of time is that the sincere faith of these fellows in, in general. Now, there was always exceptions But in general, um, it became more of a religious show for them that emphasized the external and the trivial. You know, they were more into the religion and the rituals and the ceremonies and all the external obediences to their their traditions. And the majority of them just became a bunch of self-deceived hypocrites who were really more interested in gaining the approval and the praise of the people than they were in honoring God. And we saw all of this when the, when the Lord talked about them in the Sermon on the Mount. And he will again in Matthew 23 when he points his finger and, you know, over and over again, he's called them a bunch of hypocrites, but he's trying to get their attention. And there were good Pharisees, weren't there? I mean, we had who? Nicodemus? He was a good—I mean, he really he really did— want to seek for truth and then there was of course Paul Saul was a Pharisee who was really intent on it. I mean he was zealous for his faith but in general they became a people who were a bunch of hypocrites well remember this parable is to rebuke those who trust in their own righteousness to gain for them the kingdom of God you know in other words that they could attain the kingdom of God on their by their own works And the foundation of their self-confidence, their trust, is in themselves. That's the foundation of their confidence, is in themselves and what they can do. The first century Jewish spiritual leaders had convinced themselves that their religious deeds, their works, their obedience to the law was so far superior to others that God was obviously very impressed with them. If anyone was to deserve heaven, who would it be? It was surely it would be them. I mean, God, and they're thinking God was practically their debtor. (laughs) They were such good guys. He he owed them salvation because of of all their 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 works and their watch guarding over the nation. You know, they were the ones who had protected Israel from Antiochus Epiphanes, and now they were going to protect Israel from this other fellow who was claiming to be Messiah, Jesus Christ. So God owed them heaven. In fact. The Pharisees had many converts, many proselytes among the Jewish people regarding this self-righteous attitude because the nation was filled with people who thought that they were good enough because of their obedience to the rituals and the traditions of their religion to make it into the kingdom of God. You know, it was those horrible lowlifes such as prostitutes and murderers and adulterers and, and publicans and, of course, the Samaritans and, of course, the Gentiles, they were the ones who would not inherit the kingdom of God. But Israel was full of a people, a proud people, who thought that if anyone would get to heaven, it would be them. Because they're the children of who? Of Abraham. But this fundamental religious assumption stood completely opposed to the grace of God, which came to them embodied in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The the fact that anybody... Anybody, whosoever, could enter into the kingdom of God simply by grace through faith in this one calling himself the son of God and the son of man, the promised seed of the woman, the the Messiah. That was an affront to their lifetimes spent in dutiful religious works. I mean, after all, why have we spent our lives obe- trying to obey all the trivial <laughs> trivialities of the law and, and uh, the rituals and the ceremonies and the sacrifices? And, and more, worse to them, it was really an affront to their entire inflated image of themselves. You know, grace? Grace? No, no, no. That doesn't inflate our egos. It's all about works. Actually... Contemporary counterparts to the Pharisees Abound around us everywhere There are Pharisees everywhere And yes, where else? In the church, they're everywhere Because they are anyone whose goal Is really personal approval You know, feeling good about myself Because essentially I am a good person Do you ever hear that? I'm a good person You know, even, I am really even a Hmm, person when I start comparing myself to everyone else you see the secular humanist and the liberal theologian begins with the false assumption that we are basically and innately what? good that's where they begin that we are basically good, good. you know yeah we got a little bad in us but overall we're mostly good which is totally unbiblical. And what they would tell us is that we simply need to trust in our humanity, which is uh, really an optimism about man's potential that I find very frightening. Because it ascribes to man the task of being his own savior and his own redeemer. And that, in case you haven't noticed, after thousands of years of human history is a position of total despair. What if man was his own redeemer and savior? How much hope would we have? None. Zero. He certainly hasn't proven it by his history. Equally terrifying is a cosmic new age humanism which says that humanity is deity and that we are perfect the way we are. And when we accept that we are perfect life works that's what they say well I don't know about you but these uh, little spiritual gurus and and mystics and and tree huggers they can irrationally brag all they want about their inherent divinity (laughs) but they are really forced to wear blinders when it comes to the reality of sin some of them will actually say that sin is just uh, it's just an imagination of the mind it's not re it's not real but again you, know, you have to put on blinders to say that don't you that that uh, there's no such thing as sin and wickedness and suffering and and death about which they really have no solution And if, if anyone i would like to ask them if any one of them has has really truly discovered the full potential of his inner div- divinity then why doesn't he do something about sin and death for the rest of us? Or is he simply too selfish or too impotent of a god um, to do something about it, as all the other gods have been, you know, the other gods of man's imaginations? Well, besides secularism and besides humanism, besides humanism and liberalism and New Ageism, even the path of performance religion which is you know all other religions besides Christianity are performance religions they're all work systems is the conviction all of these things are the conviction that man that based on man's own efforts he can obtain righteousness um, that will put him into the presence of God and so what that is is an elevation of self and it's a deflation of God if you think about it we'll talk a little bit more about that a little later this is a difficult lesson isn't it <laughs> I had a hard time with this lesson but hope you're all following me and none of it is in the books so forget that <laughs> the scripture teaches us that such confidence you know that we can work our way into God's presence such confidence is delusional for one thing and it's also very very fatal all such proud claims overlook the basic fact of our human nature, which is that the human heart is deceitful above all things, and what else? Desperately wicked. We are all sinful and there is absolutely nothing we can do or try to tell ourselves that is going to change that truth. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And to think that that you can earn yourself into God's presence is to deflate God and to lower his standards to your to what you think you can obtain to to be in his presence but the scripture says that um, the way that all of us have sinned there is no none righteous no not not one all of us as sheep have have strayed every single one of us you know we're all sinners because we have inherited the sin nature We're, we're sinners by birth but we're also sinners by choice. Every one of us if we had been in Adam's shoes or Eve's slippers, every one of us would have chosen to sin against God. There's none righteous and the wages of sin is what? Death. We daily even as Christians with a new nature, we still daily battle the lust of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes and the pride of life. Even the Pharisees, with all of their meticulous attention to the details of the law of God, could not remove their guilt before a holy God, and they could not earn salvation. The reason, the real bottom line reason why they hated Jesus so much is because he was so perfect. Look at the love and compassion he had for everybody. He was just shedding too much light on their darkness, And they didn't like the way it made them feel, you know, that guilt. They didn't like it, so they hated him. And he had a way of just always making them so uncomfortable and pointing the finger right at their particular problems and uh, disturbing the sense of their false security that they had spent their lifetimes trying to obtain. But the Lord had made it very, very clear very early in his ministry when he was still up in Galilee and he spoke the the Sermon on the Mount. He had made it very clear that except one's righteousness should exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, a person could in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. This obsessive delusion with selfism is very apparent in another very obvious way other than its contradiction with the teaching of scripture and that is in its fruit if you want to see if selfism is true just look at its fruit how do you know a good tree? by its fruit what has been the fruit or the result of for example um, our contemporary self-absorptionism, our our contemporary society that's so obsessed with self, what's the fruit? The result is that we are a generation of people who are more anxiety-ridden, more drug-dependent, more emotionally insecure, and more abusive than any other society in human history, and that's saying a lot. The promise of the selfish humanists And the promise of the selfist mystics and the promise of the selfist religionists that they would bring man into a golden age is really mocked by the facts. Just look around you. How many people do you see who are happy? I mean, that's their goal is happiness. How many are actually happy? How many live on depression medicines and uppers and downers and those who do their own thing so that they can feel good about themselves not only erode in their own stability but they erode away the very foundation of, of society which is what we see happening in our country today. To, to, to function properly, do you know what a person needs to build his life upon or what a nation needs to build it, its society on? The two great commandments, so simple. What are they? To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might, with all thy... What is it? missed one. (laughs) Strength, might, strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, along with the delusive confidence in self, when somebody is all about self, automatically, quite naturally, flows... A derisive contempt for others, as uh, we're going to see, in, illustrated by the Pharisee here in, the, in his attitude toward the uh, the publican, and as we saw in the unjust judge's attitude toward the the widow, and even as we'll see if we get to it this morning, the uh, disciples' attitude toward the parents who brought to Jesus their own little children. You say, see, when you when you build up, when you inflate self, you deflate God, and then you also deride others. You you know, in order to inflate yourself, well, you know, I'm really good, actually I'm really great, what, what am I doing? I'm bringing God down to meet my standards of goodness, and then I'm looking at others... Not loving my neighbor as myself, but I'm looking at others to compare myself with them, and so I deflate them, too. I deflate God, I deflate them, because I said, compared to them, I'm pretty good, you know? I'm not a murderer, I'm not an extortioner, that's exactly what this Pharisee says. I'm not unjust. So they go hand in hand. You know, if you don't love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, I think I said it right that time, then, then, then there's no way you can love, if you don't have that that vertical relationship right there's no way you're going to have the horizontal relationship right and that's exactly what we see in the world today alright um, now remember what is the stated reason for this parable it's it's for those it's to rebuke those who not only trusted in themselves in their own righteousness the selfists oh we could also call them the selfishists <laughs> but also uh, to rebuke those who despised others when self-worth is based on your own achievements then there is this continual comparison with others you see it's the habit of those who elevate themselves in their own minds to push down others before I've called this the teeter-totter theology you know in order to inflate, inflate yourself you push down others and that's why it's all about grace isn't it Isn't that why he said in Ephesians 2 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works. Why? Because if we were able to obtain heaven by works, what would we spend eternity doing? Boasting. (laughs) Not of works, lest any man should boast. We'd all say, Well, you know how I got here? This is what I did. How'd you get here? We'd all be boasting throughout eternity, and who would get the glory for that? God? No, no, God would not get the glory. Well, the sample Pharisee that the Lord used in his parable came to the temple to pray. He was coming to do his thing. This is what he specialized in. He would feel very much at home and comfortable in a religious setting. And how did he pray? It says he stood as he prayed. And Vincent's word studies of the Greek tells us that the word stood, which is used here regarding this Pharisee, implies taking up his position ostentatiously, striking a certain attitude. You know, he he would take his place and he would stand there in all his robes, you know, and and it's more than just standing. He stood, you know, to make, make himself seen. And learning what we did from the Lord in the Sermon on the Mount and also learning what the Lord had to say over in Matthew 23, it was the habit of the Pharisees to, quote, do all their works for to be seen of men. And uh, so we have a picture, really, in our minds of what, it, what was involved in the standing position of this man. He would have positioned himself in the temple courtyard. It would have been the court of the women where they would go to pray. But he would have gotten himself just as close to the holy place as he could get. And he would stand in a way that was purposed to gain for himself the most attention, and the most esteem from the people. You know, they loved to have the little bells on the bottom of their robes ringing as they walked so everybody would would make way for them, and, and they loved to hear the people call them rabbi and reverence them, etc. And since it was the common practice to pray out loud, especially for the religious leaders, we can pretty well be sure that his prayer was spoken, you know, in a loud, deep, reverential... Have you ever heard somebody pray like that? Let us pray, O oh God. <laughs> I think it just, I mean, that's, that's how he would do it. But just one diagnostic phrase explodes away all the pretense of this man's prayer. And that little diagnostic phrase comes from the Lord. And what is it? He said that this Pharisee was praying with himself. You see, he wasn't really talking with God. He wasn't talking to God at all. He was having a very obnoxious, bragamony session with himself. You notice those two words? Let's see, where is it? Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. He was having a soliloquy with his own self. Now, prayer is meant to be primarily God-centered, But this man, if you notice his words, had a little bit of an I problem. Five times he used the pronoun I. You see, his prayer is all about himself, and therefore it was with himself. He spoke absolutely no words of praise to God. There is no, if you look at his prayer, there's there's no worship of God in his prayer. There's no display of concern for who God is or for what God has done his prayer is really nothing but a disguised self-congratulations he glories over what he is that he is not as other men he glories in what he does he says I I fast twice a week and he glories in what he gives he says I give tithes so there's no display here at all of of reverential awe for being in the presence of a holy God. Instead, he stands tall, and he speaks proudly, and he shows evidence of, of being convinced that he belongs in a class of special men who tower above all others. His prayer really teaches us how not to pray. That's what his prayer <laughs> teaches us, how not to pray. His prayer was a repugnant recitation of self-glorification that was absolutely dishonoring to God and dishonoring to his fellow man. You know, it really is too bad that the Pharisee just didn't end his prayer with the first few words when he said, God, I thank thee. He should have shut up right then and left (laughs) because after that, everything was just a proud display of his own virtues and never really did he truly thank God. And never did he pray anything for anyone else. He didn't pray for anyone else. He's not interested in others except to use them as a comparative tool to elevate himself. It's it's kind of funny, really, that he thanked God that he was not like others when the truth of the matter really is that others should be thankful if they're not like him. I mean, personally, I'm thankful that Well, of course, there's a tendency in all of us to be like him, unfortunately. Self always gets its ugly head in the way. But we could really be thankful that we're not more like him. Instead, he's thanking that he's not like others. You see, it is the very ones that he talked about. He talked about, you know, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. But it's the very ones he mentioned, extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers, and even that uh, one who he called the publican. Praying afar off, they are the ones who feel the heavy, they're heavily laden with the burden of their own sin. You know, they feel the guilt of their sin, and generally it's those kind of people who are much quicker to come to the Savior than the self-righteous, who do not even see how sin-sick they are. So, you know, he really should have been more like the ones he was comparing himself with because he would have been, it would have been easier for him to get saved if he was more like them. But he didn't know that he was even sick. The Pharisees would have declared themselves very spiritually healthy, but they were really great hypocrites who were not nearly as innocent as they proclaimed. Although they condemned, as this Pharisee, they would condemn extortioners. An extortioner is someone who takes from other people unjustly. You know, takes what is theirs for themselves. Um, Yet, the way they themselves got their wealth, and most most Pharisees were were wealthy, the way they got their riches was even worse because they did so with, uh, you know, hypocritical piety, religious piety. Remember, it was the Pharisees who Jesus condemned for devouring widows' houses. They took advantage of poor widows and took their money. And remember this condemnation. And it was to Pharisees that he said these words. He said, woe unto you hypocrites, for ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within you are full of extortion and excess. That's in Matthew twenty-three twenty-five. So, you know, the very one he's condemning, he's a hypocrite because he too is an extortioner. Somebody he just doesn't see it and this Pharisee may have been made a, a pious public thanks to God that he was not unjust like other men but again the religious rulers of Israel were in the practice of unjustly treating the people over whom they were supposed to be spiritual shepherds the unjust way, think just of a few cases that we've looked at, the unjust way that they treated that adulterous woman, remember her? They caught her in the very act of her adultery and they brought her to Jesus well that was unjust because she was caught in the very act, where was the man? I mean they, they didn't treat women very justly at all, and then their whole, we talked about this back in um, Ma- Mark 7 their whole core band system, how many of you remember that? Where um, they got away with, with um, not honoring their mothers and their fathers by saying, well, I, you know, my mom and dad are getting old, but I can't, I can't support them, I can't give them any money because I've already said Corban to all my money that um, it will go to the temple. It was just a big trick so that they didn't have to take care of the elderly, is what it was. That was treating the elderly, their own parents, with unjusti- injustice. And most of all, we know, well, and also remember the way they treated that man who had been born blind after he received his, his sight, and they desynagogued him because he told them that it was Jesus. Oh, so one thing I know, I was blind, I now I see. All right, you're desynagogued. Talk about injustice. They were not a just people the pharisees and the and the, the bottom line thing is their whole scheme of trying to uh, to murder Jesus and ensnare him every time they came around him they were trying to ensnare him and trip him up and then the whole way that they finally crucified him all the unjust trials that they had and everything and then the third sin that he mentions is the sin of adultery and this is another issue in which the pharisees were just as guilty as those they condemned all they would do, you know, if they saw another woman that they'd rather have than their present wife, is they'd write out their little bill of divorcement papers so as to cover up their adulterous ways. Um, and furthermore, anyone who listened to the Lord's Sermon on the Mount knows that to even have lust in one's heart for another woman would be to commit adultery. And, and the Jews also were spiritual adulterers because... Um, you know they they put so many other gods before the true god such as self and and mammon so he's really guilty of all three things you know he's comparing himself to the extortioners and to the uh and to the unjust and to the and to the um adulterers and he's guilty he's just as guilty as they are well then after thanking god that he was not as other men the Pharisee said, or even as this publican, which tells us another thing about his position and his posture. He had his eyes open when he was praying. Now, I'm not saying there's anything really wrong with that, but obviously the man to see the publican who stood afar off. Now, the publican, I imagine, was as far from the holy place as he could be. You know, this Pharisee was up front right near where the holy place would have been in the courtyard. And the publican was on the fringes of the courtyard. And so this Pharisee had to be looking around so he could see that. And he said, you know, or as that publican over there. And so again, um, you know, this shows us that he wasn't really focused on the one he was talking to. His eyes were looking around as he prayed. And also, it wasn't particularly kind of him to say that because um, very likely he was speaking out loud, which was the custom for them to do, and he was saying this out loud, and other people would hear, and they would all look at the publican. It wasn't very considerate of the publican, and I don't know if the publican himself would have heard him. I doubt it because that courtyard was very huge, but even, you know, if he did hear him, that was insulting. You know, it would have been, wouldn't it have been a much more righteous Thing for the Pharisee to have interceded in prayer for that publican than for him to have insulted him the way he did? Of course it would have been. But he had no regard for his fellow man. And really, he didn't care if the publican was lost and went to hell he merely wanted to drag the publican into his prayer so that he the publican would furnish the dark background on which his own virtues he thought would shine all the more glorious now publicans you know worked as under uh, collector under tax collectors for the romans so they actually worked for the romans and they were a corrupt and hated class of men because generally they lined their own pockets uh, by collecting more taxes than than were necessary. So they'd, you know, they'd ta- hire, tax the people, and then put the excess in their own pockets. And um, when, when the Pharisee compared himself to such men, it made him feel great about himself. In fact, it made him feel so great about himself that he began to boast. And he says... Uh, I'm glad I'm not like that publican. In fact, I twice, I I fast twice in the week and I give tithes of all that I possess. Now, the reason he was so proud of these works is because he went beyond what was the, the requirement of the scripture. It wasn't required that someone fast twice a week. It was really a fast was only required once a year at the time of the, the the day of atonement but the pharisees liked to you know go beyond so that everybody would look at them and say how spiritual they were so he fasted twice a week and i believe it was on mondays and thursdays that they would fast and um, um unfortunately this excess in outward observance of religion was all done for show it was done again as we know from the lord's own words to praise to gain the praise of men, and it was to feel good about himself. So this proud report of his fasting and his tithing, he tied a tenth of everything, everything. You know, they would even tithe their their herbs. (laughs) Um, All of this, again, really demonstrated that he had a very small opinion of God because the God he pretended to thank was a God who would be impressed with such trivialities. You see? He's trying to... He brings God down to a much lower level and saying, you know, this God that I worship is really going to be impressed with the fact that I fast twice a week and that I even tithe my mint and my cumin. And uh, he also brings God down to a very low level by thinking that God is going to be as easily deceived as the people by all this outward show of, of, of pious conduct, which was really nothing more than covering up a lack of inward faith and character. Now, the reason this man had no appreciation of his true sinfulness is because he did have a deflated sense of God he did not understand the holiness of god you all know he was once a baseball player who became a preacher great preacher he said that a proud person is all front door i like that he said when when you go in you're immediately in the backyard because it's all facade (laughs) and that's how it was with this Pharisee it was all about style rather than substance it was all about appearance rather than reality he was so full of self that even at a time when he thought he was talking with God he could not explore beneath the surface of his self to see who he really was He just refused to do—he didn't want to take a look at himself and really see who he was. Well, there was another person who came to the temple to pray that day, and his reputation before the Jewish uh, people would have been the polar opposite of the Pharisee. He was shunned by all respectable Jews because he was actually classed with robbers and with traitors. They looked at publicans as traitors. And um, and for good reason, because most of the publicans were dishonest, and they were corrupt. Who else was a publican who became a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Matthew, yeah, and his former name was <laughs> Levi. And we're going to meet in a few weeks. We'll meet another publican, a little short guy, Zacchaeus, yeah. But, um, so that, you know, there, there are Republicans who, like this one, saw their unworthiness and came to the Lord. Um, but most publicans were dishonest, they were corrupt. But by the position and by the posture of this particular publican, I mean, compare his position and his posture with the Pharisee and you see a world of difference. We find a man who, who wanted to come into God's presence, But unlike the Pharisee, he knew he was not righteous. He really knew he was sin-sick. And so where did he stand? He stood afar off. He was conscious of his unworthiness to approach the sacred place where God uh, had his holy habitation. So the place of his praying, even just the place of his praying, reflected his humility. And then we also have his position, which reflected his humility. Because we're told that he would not so much as what? Lift up his eyes. to have. Now the Pharisee was obviously looking around as he prayed to make sure everybody was paying attention to him. And that's how he saw the publican. But this publican. Wouldn't even lift up his eyes unto heaven, so he had to have been standing, you know, looking down. He he, that's just that's a position of humility. He understood his his position before a holy God. So his his uh, position and his place show his unworthiness his uh, his humility. In in uh, already talked about that. Okay, let me. See. Oh, and then the other thing he's doing is what. It says he smote his breast, and the in the Greek it's given in the continuous tense, so he keeps on smiting his breast, and that was a well-known gesture uh, to do, to display grief and sorrow. What's the first beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit you must understand your hopelessness and your helplessness you know your spiritual poverty before a holy god he had he displayed that beatitude virtue and now he's displaying the second one because blessed are they that mourn what are they mourning over their sin and so he's really when when he's beating his breast He's showing that um, he's sorrowful, he's mournful, he's grieving over his sinfulness, and he's acting as though he were in the presence of death because that's also what they would do when someone died. So he's showing that he understands he's in the presence of death. He, uh, He did not need to be convinced that he was a sinner worthy of death. He had come to that conclusion on his own and he was just absolutely overwhelmed with with who he was in light of the holiness of almighty god everything about this man evidences his humility and um... in six words in the greek now it's not the same in english but in the greek there's only six words that come from his lips and they are truly the cry of a heart that is broken and and contrite he says Oh, God, be merciful to me. And in the Greek translation, it would be the sinner. Oh, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This man did not come to the temple to pray in order to draw a crowd and to recount before others all of his merits. He came in desperation to meet with God in order to beg his mercy. In contrast to the Pharisee who saw himself as better than all others around him, this publican actually referred to himself as the sinner. The sinner. And I guess he held that place until Paul came along later. <laughs> he was the sinner and then Paul came along as, you know, later on in 1st Timothy fifteen, and said that he was the chief of sinners. So, quite a contrast between the two characters, right? While the Pharisee saw only good in himself, this man saw only sin. He was the sinner. The sinner. In his eyes, there was no sinner worse than him. The Pharisee put his hope in his own merit, whereas the publican put his hope in God's mercy. And a better prayer could not have been prayed than what this man prayed. There is absolutely no self-absorption here. There is no self-righteousness here at all. And so, because of that, the way is made wide open for salvation. You know, that's all it takes, isn't it? It's just a heart that is humble before a holy God. A heart that is willing to see, yes, I fall far short of the of the righteousness of God there is no way I can attain the holy you know to the holiness of God to stand in the presence of a holy God I, if you if you understand the Sermon on the Mount and how to even think something in our minds makes us a sinner you know and then you get into the whole realm of not only sins of commission but sins of omission Things we should do that we don't do. And how can anybody say that he is not a sinner? We're all sinners. We all are hopeless in hell. And that's all it takes is to recognize how how hopeless we are and just cry out for his mercy. In myself, I have nothing to offer God, but will you forgive me and save me? Be merciful to me. And the way is wide open to salvation. Who's the one who went away justified that day? This man, this publican. You see, um, there are no—he ex- doesn't offer any excuses whatsoever for his sin because there are no excuses for sin. You know, one day at the great white throne judgment, every mouth is going to be shut, right? Not one person standing before Christ at the great white throne judgment is going to be able to offer any excuse for their sin. This man doesn't do that. He understands that God does not forgive excuses. God forgives only what? sins and all we have to do is ask him his call for mercy has behind it now also and this is something again we don't see in the english but behind his call for mercy is the whole rich theology of the old testament because the term he used for mercy is actually the the word propitiation it's a hard word to say propitiation which means to satisfy the demands of a holy god and to appease the wrath of God on sin. And uh, it's the same word that was spoken of the Holy of Hol- in the Holy of Holies, the place that was called the mercy seat. You see, it was on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, which was inside the Holy of Holies. Uh, the mercy seat was located between the wings of the golden cherubim that the sacrificial blood was sprinkled one day a year by the high priest, and that was on the Day of Atonement, so as to make it possible for a sinful people to have fellowship with a holy God. So this man's plea, this publican's plea, is not just a generalized call for mercy. Oh, have mercy on me. It was very specifically a call for God to deal with his sin by making atonement, by making propitiation for him, you know, to satisfy God's demand for sinless blood to be shed, to atone for his sin, and to appease God's wrath. This man understood theology, really. And this is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ came to do. He came to be... The, the, uh, the slain lamb, you know, to have his blood sprinkled for us so that he might atone for sin for us and, and uh, take be the propitiation for us to satisfy the demands of a holy God in our place. Now, because this man believed he was a sinner and because he uh, knew he needed the shed blood of the slain lamb on the altar of God in order to reconcile him to God, which is the whole message of the gospel, because of all that, because of what he understood, he went away justified. And the word justified is another one of those great words in Scripture, you know, like propitiation. It means that he went away declared righteous. In other words, in our language, he went away what? Right. Just as if he had never sinned. He went away saved. He went away, a saved man. God not only forgave the tax collector of his sins, but he also gave him his own righteousness. Isn't that a deal? Wow, we give him our sins, and he gives us his righteousness. Wonderful. But the great tragedy of this this parable is seen in the Pharisee and so many others like him. It says in Romans 10.3, Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Justification or salvation is impossible. It's not possible for anyone who is trusting in their own righteousness. They may have a stupendous self-image and they may have all the self-confidence in the world. And they, you know, all their eloquent speeches may be very, very impressive. And they may be held in great esteem by the deceived multitudes. But it's all delusion and it's all self-deception. Unless we see ourselves in the light of God's holiness and our own tremendous unworthiness, and and unless we are... Um, able to ask for God's mercy to forgive us in and through and by his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, all our little ego trips will mean absolutely nothing. They're utterly foolish, and they're very, very dangerous. Why? Because everyone that exalts himself will be abased. The Lord wants us to have hearts like the publican. Hearts that are humble and sensitive to skin. A skin. (laughs) No, not skin, not flesh. Hearts that are sensitive to sin and hearts that um, are totally dependent. You know, like little children, which is, I won't have time to get into that. But hearts like little children where we're totally dependent on him. You know, on his mercy and his grace. Because that's where salvation begins. He that humbleth himself will be exalted humility I always say humility is the key virtue of the Christian life humility is where it all begins and it is the way of the kingdom now that doesn't mean that doesn't mean a person who has who has a large inferiority complex and goes around continually putting himself down Christian humility belongs to the one who has accepted God's evaluation of his life. He knows that he is a sinner. He knows he is unworthy to be in God's presence. And he knows that he is hopeless and helpless apart from the mercy and the grace of God. But he also knows that by God's grace, he is righteous. And he has been exalted by God to full membership in his eternal family. It's as A.W. Tozer said. He said in ourselves nothing but in God everything. In ourselves nothing but in God everything. That is our motto. All right, I did not get to the precious children which is a shame, but I love cuz I love precious little children, but be sure to read about that in your books, that's in verses 15 to 17.